0: We're now going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 26. We're continuing this series in Proverbs. We've subtitled Scandalous Wisdom. And what we've said is that as we learn to obey Jesus and walk in biblical obedience, biblical wisdom, that's going to be surprising, distracting, strange to our culture, scandalous to our culture. But as we obey Jesus, God is giving us grace. We are uh, giving grace back to our community. We're loving our community as we obey him. And so we want to continue to trust Jesus and that what he has for us is good. And that it'll make a difference in our lives and in our community's lives. This week, we're calling the sermon Work by Grace. We're going to focus on the topic of work. It comes up a lot in the book of Proverbs. Um, We've got negative examples of the sluggard, which is the slothful, lazy person. We've got positive examples of diligence and hard work. I encourage you to go do a word study yourself to look up all the different passages. We're not going to get to cover all of them today, but we're going to try to hit the highlights as we think about what does it look like to work by God's grace. When we look at the bigger picture of Scripture, we see that in the book of Genesis, God created humanity for work. Work is a good gift. Now, because we live in a broken world of sin and rebellion, we have problems with our work. We all have issues at our job. It might be relational issues or um, disease issues or problems with ourself or with the people we work with or with the product we're trying to produce. There's all kinds of issues at work, and that's because of sin and the brokenness of the world. But we have to remember God created us to image Him, to reflect His glory as we build things, make things, create cities, create cultures. And so work is a stewardship we've been given to use for God's glory. And we have to remember that as God's people. In my own life, I have to confess, I was kind of a lazy kid. Um, I was the youngest of three, kind of a lazy kid, coasted a lot. And so I can think back over different times in my life where I grew in my understanding of God's real plan for us in work. One thing I remember was entering into junior high and having Coaches that taught us to work hard. And I think at first I just thought they were trying to kill us. But I had one coach particularly that mentored me and taught me to work hard. And so I want to give thanks to him and and to those experiences where I actually learned that working hard can make a difference. That if you put in the work, you'll see productivity, you'll see results. Um, Even more than that, I married this beautiful woman when I was 20 years old. Y'all, 20 years old. Yeah. I was in college. And up until that point, I hadn't really learned to study, which is typically an important part of college, but I'd made it through the first two years of college without studying. I married this woman in college who was diligent, who had a godly work ethic, who, when she was given an assignment, she would do that assignment. She would get the syllabus and write down everything on her calendar. She would buy the books. She would prepare ahead of time (laughs) with, yeah, she'd buy all the books. She'd She'd buy pencils, she'd buy pens, she would read her books. I'd never seen anything like it. And as a young Christian, I had this theology of like, oh, okay, I know work is good, but it was kind of abstract. And then God gave me the gift of seeing this model, right? Of actually seeing like, oh, this is what that looks like. And I'm so thankful because now my job, a large part of it is, is studying and teaching. I wouldn't be able to do what I do now if I hadn't learned to work and to study Uh, in college when I was 20 years old and and married my wife. You've probably had similar experiences in your life where someone mentored you or you saw an example or you learned about the theology of work and, and you've grown in your understanding that work is actually a gift. Our text today is the negative example, okay? It's the negative example that shows us what not to do. So we're going to look at the text in Proverbs 26. It's verses 13 through 16. I think it's around page 540. If you're opening up in your black Bible, you can grab one of those black Bibles under the chairs. 540, 544 maybe, but it's Proverbs chapter 26, verses 13 Through 16, we'll see the negative example of someone who does not work, someone who is lazy. A sluggard is the phrase that's used a lot in the text. It's like a sloth, it's like someone that doesn't do anything. It's kind of a mocking poetic text where we're supposed to see this bad example and say, Oh, I I don't want to be that, right? So let's read the text Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So we've got a a smattering of negative examples here. The sluggard, we don't want to be the sluggard. We want to work hard. We want to work for God's glory. But you and I, we recognize we live in a broken world. And so the only way we can really work for God's glory is by his grace, recognizing that he's come for us, that he's saved us, he's forgiven us, he's redeeming us, he's making us new. When we recognize that grace, we call that faith. When we trust in the kindness and the grace of God, That changes our hearts, and it gives us the ability to begin working with whatever broken circumstance we have for God's glory. Now, I want to make this clear before we move on. My wife and I were talking about this. She's like, I appreciate you using me as a positive example, but you got to be careful because sometimes those of us that are very diligent can make an idol out of work, right? So just to be clear up front, we are not saved by being lazy, and that's the primary thing we're talking about today, but we're also not saved by our hard work. We're only saved by the work of Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And because Jesus is our hope, we can then rest when it's time to rest and not think that we're the ones holding the world together. And we can also work hard, knowing that He will use our work for His glory. So let me pray for us, pray that we'd be able to understand this, because I think we all come at it from different angles. We need a spirit to change our minds and our hearts, to respond properly to the words. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would change us. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would hear your word and we would respond to it, seeing that you are good and you are kind to us, that you love us, that you've given us, Jesus. Thank you for the ultimate work that you've done, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, proving that we live in a world of hope, so Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to live hopefully, to believe hopefully, and therefore to work by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, the goal is work, right? Hard work, consistent work, joyful work. It's a pretty high bar, right? And as I said, the only way that we can do this is if we believe and trust day by day, moment by moment in God's grace. So as we move through Proverbs 26, we'll reference some other Old Testament passages. We'll reference also some New Testament passages. But we have our basic outline from Proverbs 26. And here's the basic outline. Laziness makes excuses. That's the first point. Laziness makes excuses. Second point is that laziness forms bad habits. Laziness forms bad habits. And then the third point is that laziness is pride. Laziness is a kind of pride. So number one, laziness makes excuses. And and I would counter this. Working by grace is understanding that good work flows from the hope that God's grace brings, right? So laziness makes excuses. There's a lion outside. I'm going to get killed. Grace says, yeah, the world is dangerous, but Jesus has redeemed you. He's risen from the dead. You can conquer this dangerous world for his glory. So laziness makes excuses. Proverbs 26, 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. It's repeated in Proverbs twenty-two, thirteen. 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. What is the lazy person doing when they say this? They're saying, I can't go to work. Or maybe I'll go to work, but my heart won't really be into it. I won't work hard. Or maybe I'll go to work, but I'm going to do it grudgingly because this this world is dangerous and it's unfair. There's a lion outside. Now, we want to be careful and be nuanced as we interpret Scripture, right? Are there actually lions outside? You're like, eh, no, maybe. I see confused looks. Okay, I got some bad news for you folks. All right, let me put up the picture here. This is a mountain lion, and they have actually spotted mountain lions in central Texas. So, not sure about Jerusalem, but here, yeah, there are lions outside, and they might eat you. Here's, Here's where I'm going with this. I'm not trying to discourage you. What I'm trying to show you is that the excuse making is often tethered to reality, right? Here's how you might say it, but Dave, you don't understand. My boss is terrible. And I might go visit your workplace and I'm like, yeah, your boss is terrible. That's a horrible place to work. But what does Jesus call us to? Colossians 3 says, man, if you're a bondservant, if you've got the worst job you could possibly have in first century Rome, work heartily as unto the Lord. Don't work for your boss, work for Jesus. So the scripture says, because of the grace of God changing this broken world, We can work even though a lion might eat us on the way to work, right? And just to be clear, there are not tons of mountain lions around here locally. We spot them every once in a while. I think it was like four or five years ago, somebody in Temple or Belton had their poodle eaten by a mountain lion. It doesn't happen all the time. You're probably going to be fine, right? But here's another way I would say it, right? You might get hit by a bus tomorrow. Does that mean you don't go to work? You might fall dead just because of the danger of your job, man. Some of you guys are soldiers. You work in the most dangerous job someone could work in, right? But you still go to work. We all have different dangers that we face. The sluggard says, I'm not going to do my work because it's dangerous. But the godly person says, yeah, my work is dangerous, but I'm still going to work for the glory of God because I'm ultimately trusting in God and not trusting in my safety. I'm trusting in Jesus. And that's the incredible hope that the gospel gives us, that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Laziness makes excuses, but good work flows from the hope that God's grace gives us. One of my favorite parables has always been Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. And I think this plays this out. It kind of shows another lens on this idea of laziness making excuses versus God's grace, giving us the strength to work past our excuses. And so in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, we've got this master giving talents of silver. And so in the ancient world, a talent was a big amount. It was like a weight of of silver, a large amount, you know, like being given gold bars or silver bars. Now in our modern language, we use the word talent now to mean gifts and skills, right? Because we recognize from this parable that Jesus was giving a parable to show that we've all been given different skills and opportunities and job circumstances in life. And we can take those and invest them and spend them for God's glory, or we can hoard and hide from the world saying God is unfair, there's a lion outside. And so in the parable of the talents, you've got two guys that take what they're given, they invest it, they make more money and they give it back to the master. And they're, they're like, hey, look, we invested and made more for you. They give glory to the master. They trust the master and they do something with what the master's given them. The third person in the parable of the talents says, I know the master is harsh and unfair and takes what does not belong to him. And so what does he do? He buries his talent. He takes it He buries it. He doesn't spend it. He doesn't invest it. What does the master say? Anybody know the story? The master's like, well, since since you said I'm harsh and unfair, I'm going to judge you according to what you believe about me. Since you believe I'm not gracious, I'm not going to show grace to you then. And it's a spiritual parable. The flip side of that is as we trust in God's grace, that frees us to live our lives with reckless abandon, to actually invest what God has given us. If you don't trust in God's grace, you're always going to spend your life looking over your shoulder, wondering when he's going to bring down the hammer, because you don't trust him, you don't trust the world. We live in a hard world, and I know some of you have terrible jobs, and I'm sorry. Pray, right? First Corinthians 7, Paul's like, yeah, if you're a bondservant and you can get free, of course, get free, right? But He's really clear in First Corinthians seven, don't use your bad job as an excuse to not trust God. You can trust God in your bad job. And you can take some kind of step to honor the people you work with, to honor the bad boss, to whatever those circumstances are, you can take some kind of steps to say, I trust in God's grace more than my circumstances. So I'm gonna work for the glory of God. So the sluggard says there's a lion outside. You may not be saying that. You might now that I've shown you the picture. There are some lions around here, right? But typically we don't say that, right? So what do we say? What are our excuses? What's the monster that you think is going to kill you? What's the circumstance of your difficult job? What's the problem you're facing? I think it's really helpful to name it because a lot of times that just renders in the back of our head. It's like floating around back there and it's causing us to act weird, but we're not really being honest about it about what we're scared of or we're frustrated by or we're you know, thinking might ruin everything. It's really good to just name those things. Like what are the excuses that you have to not work hard, to not work joyfully? Excuses you have to not give your heart and soul, as Colossians 3 says, to work heartily as if you're working for Jesus and not for this bad boss. What are the excuses that you have? Go, go through those. Write them down in a journal. Share them maybe with your spouse or with a friend that can encourage you in the gospel? Share those things with the Lord. Another way to say this is what are the fears, right? What are the things you're afraid of? Are you afraid of getting hurt? Are you afraid of not being paid well for what you're doing? Are you afraid of being dishonored at work? Maybe it's happened already and you're afraid it's going to happen again. Are you afraid of being betrayed or stabbed in the back? You know, name what those things are and then replace that with faith and say, okay, these things are real, and they will hurt, and Jesus will cry with you as you grieve and lament through these things. They're real. They're not something to be belittled, but you know what? Jesus, you're better. I trust you more. As it says in Romans 8, the, the glory that we are headed towards when we see Jesus face to face doesn't even compare to the suffering of this current time. It doesn't mean the suffering's not real. It doesn't mean we don't cry over the suffering. It doesn't mean we don't ask our friends for help in the suffering. I need help. Will you pray for me? Will you come with me? But we can trust that Jesus is bigger than the pain and the suffering of our current situation. So then, as we go through that process, then we, then we can kind of have the consciousness, the, the freedom to say, okay, what's the next thing I can do? What's the next thing you can do to glorify God with your work? It may be working harder. It may be praying for the best of your unit, your company, the operation that you're working with. It may be saying, man, how can I glorify God by doing really good work even though I don't necessarily trust these people I work with, but I'm gonna do really good work and try to glorify God and try to do my best for his honor and his worthy. What's that next step that you can take at work? It may just be smiling at work, right? Maybe God's calling you to be cheerful, to be joyful at work. What is the next step That you can take. Um, Proverbs also tells us, we saw this a few weeks ago, to go look at the ants. If you need a little motivation, look at the ants, observe the ants, look at how hard they work, look at how they don't need to be whipped or told what to do, but they go to work and they do their thing, right? It even says the ants, these dumb bugs, plan ahead. They work today so that they have extra so that when the hard times come, they'll be able to survive, Ephesians 4 gives us more detail about this concept of working ahead, right? Ephesians four twenty-eight says, Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So let me, let me put this in gospel language. The believer says, yeah, the world is crazy, and I have been hurt at work, and my job might be kind of messed up. But because of God's goodness, I'm convinced that God loves me. This world is a world of grace and abundance. So I'm going to trust in the grace of Jesus. I'm going to do the best job I can at work. And then I'm going to have extra. Then I will be able to show grace to other people. And I'll be able to pay that forward. And I'll be able to bless and encourage others. Maybe it's the extra of, of just joy and emotional time. Maybe it's the extra physically of money and being able to help somebody when they're in hard times. But because I'm receiving grace and then I'm working hard, then I have more to give and to help out Uh, others. Proverbs 18.9 is very convicting. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Whoever is slack in his work, that's like being lazy, being a slugger. Whoever's slack in his work, who's going halfway, is a brother to him who destroys. What is that saying? It's saying when I coast, I'm basically setting the world on fire, right? I'm making things worse. Let me say it another way. When we say there's a line outside, we're saying this world is a world of sin and brokenness and pain and death and disease. Yes, yes it is. It's a hard place. It's a difficult world. But when we look at the gospel, we can see God's kindness and his grace and we can say, well, I can either make it worse by being slack in my work and I can just add to the death and decay and brokenness of this world or I can trust God's kindness to me that Jesus took my sin, that he's risen from the dead, and I can trust in that grace, and then I can work ahead and try to make this world better. Yeah, it is broken. It is messed up. My wife and I have been rereading a book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. So if you're really struggling with this at a philosophical level, Lewis hits it hard. He gives good answers. It's it's a hard book to follow. It's very dense. It's very deep. Um, But he's got some good helpers, some pointers to us of like, Yeah, this world is painful. It is difficult. But here's my my summary. If you don't want to wade through all the deep philosophy, here it is. Yeah, the world is painful. What are you going to do about it? The world is painful. Are you going to hate God for that? Are you going to trust in his kindness through Jesus and try to help make the world a little less painful for the next person? So uh, Derek Kidner says this, This will transition us to the next point. Uh, Derek Kidner says, The sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man, just a regular person, who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. What is he saying? He's saying, basically, the sluggard is just a regular person. Don't be sitting there in your pride of like, well, I work hard. This is for the bad people. Pastor Dave's talking to the bad people today. No, it's all of us. We're all regular people. We can all be slack in our work. So the next point is that laziness forms bad habits. Laziness forms bad habits. And again, we have kind of this like poetic uh, mockery here of the sluggard and how they're just obsessed with sleep. So laziness forms bad habits, the opposite of this is that good work flows from the habits of grace. When we remind ourselves of God's kindness, those habits help us to work hard, but laziness forms bad habit. So Proverbs 26:14 and 15, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. So just imagine an old creaky door back and forth, right? I'm a side sleeper, so I often think of this when I'm flipping back and forth. I'm like, oh no, I'm a sluggard. I don't think it means you're a sluggard if you turn in your bed. The picture here is making fun of the person who like, that's all there is, right? That's all they do is just flop in the bed. That's their whole life. They're making an idol out of comfort and rest and sleep. And I, I certainly can go there, but, but don't feel like, oh, I turned in my bed. Now I'm a sluggard. That's not what it's saying, right? Don't take it overly literally. It's saying, man, that's all they do. Back and forth. They don't get anywhere. They just turn to this side. They turn to that side. They turn to this side. They turn to that side. Verse 15 makes it even uh, more harsh. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. What's the picture there? So this person has idolized comfort so much that they can't even spend the energy to keep comforting themselves, right? Like they're, they're so obsessed with rest and food and comfort that they can't even do that right they spoil even the comfort they're in the middle of i don't know if you can relate to that but i've been in places where i've been so burned out and so tired where i just thought oh I, need, I just need more comfort i need more rest right and you just you get to a point of diminishing returns right where you're like all right i just got to get my my i'm trying to think of a nicer way to say it i just got to keep <laughs> moving right I just got to move forward. Sometimes things come into my head and I can't let them come out. Um, (laughs) Laziness forms bad habits. Proverbs 6, 9 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The opposite, one of the positive verses about hard work is Proverbs 12, 11. It says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lack sense. So the vision is that we would work. And then this caricature of the lazy person, of the slugger, to someone who just, all they do is they sleep. That's all they do. They're so lazy, all they do is sleep. So we just have to clarify, sleep is a gift from God. Sleep is a sweet gift from God. Psalm 127 says that explicitly throughout the scripture. Sleep is used as a gift that God gives his people, rest. But then it's also the caricature of some people uh, who idolize it. And they think that's all life should be, right? And you see this in the workplace. Sometimes people think that the whole point of work is to do as little work as possible, right? No, the biblical idea of work is that you would be productive, that you would accomplish things, right? For God's glory and to bless your neighbors. And so we have this idea that we just wanna rest and we just want more comfort and we just want more sleep. We have to remember that sleep is actually a gift. I grabbed a picture of a, a dad and a toddler napping um, especially we have tons of young families here. I just want to remind you, you're probably sleep-starved. Yes, you do need sleep, okay? You need it, and I'm sorry you're not getting enough of it, okay? We have a lot of soldiers as well. Actually, this picture reminded me, we got to go see the grandbabies a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we were sleeping in the two-and-a-half-year-old's room, and in the middle of the night, she cried, and my wife pulled her into the bed with us, and so I, I woke up with the sweaty toddler on, you know, on top of my head, and like I'm curled up in the corner, And I was thinking, this was so much more painful when my kids did it every night. But when you're a grandpa, it's like, oh, this is great. This is fun. I can go one night without sleep. I'll be okay. But I understand some of you, I hear, you're going many nights without sleep, right? I've heard that that's kind of a thing in the army, right? Like the army likes to starve you of sleep as much as possible. Understand that that can become an ethos where you just tell yourself, I'm tough. Sluggards want sleep. I don't need sleep. No, you do need sleep, right? So if you found yourself in a place where you're chemically or biologically broken, where you, you just don't sleep well anymore, get medical help. Like you You need that. Your body needs that. That's part of being a healthy person. Just don't make it an idol where that's what you do all the time, right? Just don't make that your whole life goal to always rest and always refresh. No, we have habits, right? Laziness forms bad habits. We make an idol out of rest and comfort, but hard work flows from the reality that God gives us the grace of rest to refuel us so that we can work hard. So we see these rhythms in scripture, the natural rhythm of sleep at night and work during the day. We've also got the rhythm in the Ten Commandments of the one day of rest and reminding ourselves of God's grace, and then six days of work. These are beautiful habits that are built into the way God has built us. So for some of you, you're like the sluggard, trying to rest all the time. Others of you are saying, oh, no, I need to work all the time, and you never rest. And if you're doing that, chances are you're making an idol out of work. You're thinking that God approves of you because you're always getting more done. And you have to recognize, no, God is God. I can rest and let him keep the universe spinning because God's in charge, and I'm not, right? Right? So what does your life look like? Is it all work or is it all rest? The Bible says, no, we should be a people who rest, form these habits of grace. We're reminded of God's goodness and then we work for his glory. I also think it's important to recognize that right now Americans are especially messed up with sleep because we have so many like sleep mimicking habits, right? With movies and TVs and video games, uh, doom scrolling on social media, There's all kinds of addictive habits we have that we go to when we're tired, and what do they do? Make you more tired. They suck the brains out of your body. (laughs) They make you more tired, right? Like, those things are fine in moderation, but don't go to them as a form of rest. I think that's so dangerous. I find myself doing that. I know people do that all the time. Oh, I'm so tired, I just want to veg out. That's the wrong time, right? You need to go to those things from a place of strength, not expecting them to give you rest, because then you're robbing yourself of sleep, you're you just keep going, you just keep doing it, right? And you're not actually resting. So build proper balance into your life where you're resting, you're reminding yourself of God's goodness, and then you're working out of that rest. So rest well, work hard, rest well work hard. Good work flows from reminders of grace. And some of the basic reminders of God's grace, habits of grace that we talk about a lot, but I'll just re-say these are worship, like you're doing right now, right? Weekly worship is a great part of that. I think the weekly nap after worship is a good thing to engage in as well, right? I try to do that every time I can. Jesus took naps, okay? If you don't believe me, read the Gospels, good homework assignment. Jesus took naps. Rest is good. We're made for it. Worship together with God's people. Remind ourselves of God's grace, his kindness to us in the gospel. He died for us. He rose for us. Read the scriptures. Pray. Tell God you need him. Rely on him. These are all good habits of grace. Okay, the third point, laziness is pride. Laziness is pride, but good work flows from the humility of God's grace. So verse 16, the sluggard is wise, or wiser, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. What's he saying? He's like, you got seven guys that are like, you know, reasonably smart, sensible men. The sluggard thinks he's smarter than all of them. What is that saying? We think we can beat the system. This one really hurts me. (laughs) This one cuts deep. I struggle with this. I can outsmart the system. I I don't need rest. I don't need to work that hard. I don't need to rest that much. I can outsmart the system, right? I can navigate through the middle. I can figure out a way to beat the system. He's like, that's a, that's a sign of laziness. You're prideful. You, you think you can do what nobody else can do, right? And you, you might have exceptional gifts. You might be able to work harder or work smarter than the next person, but you are still dependent on God's grace. You are still a creature That he has made with limitations. And you and I, we are dependent on him. We're not as wise as we think we are. And so, as we learn real humility, as we learn to be small before God, God is holy, I'm not holy. God knows everything, I don't know everything. God can do everything, I can't do everything. I need him to proceed. As we have that real biblical humility, that real reality of who we are before him, that allows us to actually then work hard and work properly, right? Be a blessing to the people around us because let me tell you, if you're at work and you think you're smarter than anybody else, nobody wants to work with you, right? (laughs) You're not blessing anybody by, by being the smartest person in the room. You need to learn some humility. James chapter four says it this way. What causes the quarrels and the fights among you? It's the desires raging within you. They're waging they're they're raging this war within you. You've got these desires, this selfishness. That's, that's really what's bubbling up and making you prideful and thinking you know better than everybody else. James 4, 6, he says it this way. God gives more grace. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Admit your need before God and he will give you more grace. Don't fight and scrap and say, no, I can do it. I don't need God, and I don't need other people. No, admit your need. You need other people, and you need God's grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is said again, same, that's an Old Testament quote they're quoting there. It's also quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 5. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a section where Peter is telling other leaders in the church how to lead. He says, don't lead in such a way that you're lording over people, that you're domineering. Lead humbly. It's a beautiful example that Peter gives because Peter, as the great apostle, the rock of the original church, right? He writes this letter to other leaders in the church and he says, I'm just another leader. I'm just one of the dudes, and I'm telling you, don't think you're better than other people. But follow the example of our chief shepherd. If you want to lead, if you think you've got something to give to other people, if you've got some brains or some strengths and you can lead other people, follow the example of Jesus, our chief leader, the one who washed our feet, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the best cure in the world for our pride actually serve other people in love. One of the best ways to get over thinking you're wiser than everybody else is to serve, to say, how how can I wash feet in this situation? How can I just serve people? How can I sacrifice myself for the good of the other people in the room? Proverbs 3.34 is where this originally comes from. And the translation doesn't sound exactly the same, because it kind of went through Hebrew to Greek into the New Testament quotes there in James and First Peter, but Proverbs 334 we studied a few weeks ago. To the scorner, God is scornful, but to the humble he gives grace. So are you gonna be scornful? Are you gonna be proud? Or are you gonna humble yourself and admit, I don't I don't have it figured out. I need I need God's help. One of my favorite passages at the end of the First Peter passage is humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. So two things we see about living out humility and not being prideful, right? As I said before, serving like Jesus, letting Jesus be your example, But also, here he says, an active prayer life of humble dependence. I'm casting my cares on Jesus. Because here's the, the dark, scary side of this a lot of us are capable people, and that can put us into the bad habit of thinking, I can solve this, I can figure this out. It can put us into the habit of thinking, God approves of me based on my hard work and based on how effective I am, and I'm not going to God anymore for his grace. I'm going to me and I'm prideful, and I'm thinking, I can do this without God. I don't even need Jesus. Who needs Jesus? I'm a good person. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a hard worker. I'm a good neighbor. But Jesus says, no, cast all your cares on him, and he will care for you. You'll meet him in a special way in those moments where you're actually willing to admit your need and your brokenness. You'll see Jesus more clearly. I grabbed a picture of a guy, leaning back in his seat, and I, I feel bad like I'm picking on this dude. I don't know who he is. You know, he's just some model stock photo I found online, but I just felt like he was that, had that pleased with himself look. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to contrast here. Like, are you pleased with yourself? Do you come before God saying, come on, God, give me the blessings. I have done well. You owe me. That's a, that's a, that's a dangerous posture to take with God. Or... Do you come before God saying, I don't deserve anything, but I know you're gracious. I've seen that in the gospel message. uh, message. I've seen that Jesus came and he died for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to perform all the proper works, but he worked for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And so in response to that, we then give back. We ask for his help. So I think service... And prayer are the two big ways that we can apply this. The two big ways we can live humility instead of pride, right? Instead of being the lazy man that thinks he's wiser than everybody else, we can be the hardworking man that recognizes his need before God. And we can serve others. Serve by God's grace. You can serve your spouse, serve your parents, serve your neighbors, serve your church. Don't wait for people to deserve it. It's a little little clue here. Um, nobody really deserves it, Right? None of us do. Only Jesus deserves it. So that's why in Colossians 3, it says, Work heartily as to the Lord, not for your bad boss. Are you serving your boss? Yes, but you don't wait for your boss to deserve it. Jesus earned it. Jesus saved you. Jesus showed grace to you. You didn't deserve it. So we work hard because of what Jesus has done for us, not because the people we work with deserve it, right? They're going to let us down. And I'm sure sometimes the people you work with are great. I don't mean to throw them under the bus either, but you know what I mean? We don't wait for them to earn it. We give our work, we give our service, we give our love because Jesus first loved us. So serve those around you, serve the team you work with at work and join a group as well. This is really important. We talk about this, joining an existing group or finding a group of other friends where you can have other Christians reminding you of this truth, right? Where you together can cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. So we'll wrap up here. The big idea is that we would work by grace. We can't work out of our own strength or out of our own weakness. We work because of the grace that Jesus has shown to us. We remember this grace, and one of my favorite passages about hard work and the grace of Jesus is 1 Corinthians 15. We studied this several months ago. 1 Corinthians 15 is the big resurrection passage, kind of famous in the New Testament as the longest passage talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We often think of the work of Jesus being primarily his death on the cross, which is super central and important, and we believe that. And we often summarize the good news as the death of Jesus or the the blood of Jesus or the cross of Jesus. Yes, amen. But Paul clarifies that the death of Jesus is not active apart from the resurrection of Jesus. It's a package deal, and Jesus has risen from the dead. His death was effective. He won the war. He defeated sin and death. There was a lion outside. It's called sin. It's called death. And Jesus defeated that monster through his resurrection. And so because of that resurrection hope, we work hard. So Paul ends the longest passage in the New Testament about the resurrection calling us to work hard. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's why he can say in Colossians 3, if you get the worst job in the world, you can still work hard for Jesus. You can still honor Jesus because in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in communion. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for me. We thank you that you gave yourself for all of us, that you died for us, that you rose for us, that you have transformed our lives by this good news, this gospel of grace. And Lord, that changes even how we work. I pray that we would become a people that that know this deep down in our bones, that know you as the God who loves us. And out of that, out of that overflow, we would make a difference where we work. We'd be better neighbors. We'd be better employees. We glorify you because of the hope we have of your gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.